passionate cultivator of motivation. And we're still alive, almost miraculously, again this week. But we don't know how long our life is going to be. And when it comes time to leave this body, it's our craving and grasping and karma that are going to propel us into the next life very strongly and if we want to have a good life then we have to create the causes now and prepare for death but just doing that and abandoning the negative actions and creating positive ones isn't sufficient because we're still stuck in cyclic existence going up and down on this merry-go-round of rebirth endlessly, beginninglessly so when we get tired of doing this then we give up seeking pleasure in cyclic existence and praying for nirvana and that too although noble is still limited because what about everybody else all these sentient beings who have been kind to us in previous lives in this life and who will continue to be kind to us and so we can't ignore others and just look for our own spiritual liberation and so let's generate that wish to attain full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings last week I just want to uh, correct something I said I was I said that uh, we don't innately grasp the self and the aggregates to be one and we don't innately grasp them to be completely separate that that's right the example I gave that I just want to clarify the examples we don't grasp the aggregates to be and the, the person to be inherently one because sometimes we think oh gee I wish I could change bodies with that person I wish I had their mind okay we say things like that so that shows that on an innate level we're not seeing the aggregates and the self to be completely inherently one because if we did see them that way we wouldn't think of you know oh, I could change bodies or change minds with somebody else hmm? 
also we don't see the aggregates and the uh, self as inherently separate because if we did that we would see them as totally unrelated but we don't because when our stomach hurts we say I feel uncomfortable or I'm sick okay so the reason that this topic comes up is because we're trying to identify the object of negation in the emptiness meditation and it's not you know that the aggregates and the self are inherently one and it's not that the aggregates and the self are inherently different because we don't grasp them innately to exist that way what the innate self-grasping is is we think that there's a person there that ex that does not depend on being merely labeled by term and concept that's one way to talk about the object of negation another way is that there's a, a person that's blended in with the aggregates inherently existing person that's blended in with the aggregate but not seen as inherently one or inherently separate but somehow able to set itself up but existing somewhere inside the aggregate inside the body and mind okay so that's the object of the innate grasping at true existence and that's the object that we think exists but does not exist in terms of the selflessness of the person okay so I just wanted to clarify that from before now there's um the question sometimes come up comes up are we always consistently grasping at true existence do all of our consciousnesses grasp at true existence even as ordinary beings the answer to that is no okay now it's true that for ordinary beings all of our consciousnesses have the appearance of true existence and for all sentient beings except aryas in meditative equipoise and emptiness all other consciousnesses of sentient beings have the appearance of true existence but in terms of grasping a true existence not all of our consciousnesses grasp at true existence so there's three ways to, that we that there is of apprehending objects and we'll go through them and then see which ones ordinary beings have which ones arias have which ones uh, liberated beings have okay so um, the first way of apprehending things is as truly existent so we see them there out there able to set themselves up existing under their own power having their own nature their own essence their own entity totally independent from consciousness okay just the first way the second way is apprehending things as false okay so this could be either seeing things as empty of, an, of true existence or it could be seeing things as being like illusions in that they appear one way but exist another way so that's the second way of apprehending third way of apprehending 
is neither. You're not grasping a true existence, but you're not also apprehending them as like an illusion, and you're not apprehending them as empty either. Okay, so neither of the above. You're just merely apprehending them as existing in general. Okay, so consciousnesses with which grasp at true existence, these are ones like when we get angry or something like that, we're holding the, the object, apprehending it, grasping it, to exist truly. Yeah? So we ordinary beings definitely have that one. Okay? Apprehending it at, in a false way or as non-truly existent, ordinary beings who have not realized emptiness uh, directly and uh, can apprehend things as being like an illusion when they have an inferential cognition of emptiness, an inferential realization of emptiness. And of course, Aryas who have direct insight into emptiness, they can see things as empty or as illusion-like. And then the third way, as neither, yeah, again, Everybody kind of uh, can, can see them as neither inherent, apprehend them as neither inherently existent or as uh, empty or like an illusion. So this could be many of our ordinary consciousnesses when we say I'm walking down the street, you know, I'm going to go sweep the floor, uh, these kinds of things. At that point, we aren't grasping at the self as truly existent. Yeah, there's no energy around it, is there? There's no, you're not holding that there's a solid self. It's just, I'm walking, I'm sweeping the floor. Yeah, so this is important because we have to see that not all of our consciousnesses um, are erroneous in the sense of grasping at true existence. Even though for ordinary, for uh sentient beings who aren't in meditative equipoise and emptiness, all of our consciousnesses are mistaken in the sense that true existence appears to them. So it's possible for true existence to appear to a consciousness, but that consciousness doesn't grasp it as existing truly. So for example, our sense consciousnesses, they don't grasp true existence. It's only the mental consciousness that does. But the, but things appear truly existent to the sense consciousnesses. When you see yellow, it's like, yeah, yellow's out there. Yeah, it's its own nature. Okay, so it's the appearance of true existence, but the, it's a conceptual mind, actually, that's apprehending true existence, and since sense consciousnesses are not conceptual minds, you know, they don't apprehend true existence. Okay, so... Um, okay, so we're saying that ordinary beings who have not realized emptiness directly can apprehend self or other phenomena in um, in the first and the third ways. Okay, and ordinary sentient beings who um, have realized emptiness inferentially can also see it in the second way. 
So the, the point is that not all minds and sentient beings perceive or grasp a true existence. And also, not all conceptual consciousnesses of sentient beings grasp a true existence. Because you can have a conceptual consciousness that's just, you know, thinking about the tree, you know. And you're not grasp, necessarily grasping at the inherent existence of that tree when you're thinking about it. Although the tree does appear inherently existent to you. Okay? And so similarly, somebody who is not grasping at true existence is not necessarily apprehending something as empty. Because it's not just this dichotomy between apprehending emptiness of true existence and, ap- and apprehending true existence because there's this third way of apprehending it as neither. Okay? So, um, remember we were talking about some people who believe in blank-minded ed- uh, meditation and they say all consciousnesses, you should get rid of all of them, you know, because they're all uh, deluded, they're all the, the cause of suffering. And what they, the error they make is they think that all sentient beings' consciousnesses grasp to existence. In other words, they don't realize that there's the third way of apprehending things as neither truly existent nor, nor as non-truly existent. Okay? So, they, they, so because they don't think that there's any way of just saying there's a fan there, you know, without having there be grasping at true existence all the time, for that reason they say, oh, all conceptual consciousness are grasping at true existence. So we should get rid of all of them, A to Z. And remember last time we talked about the, def- the faults of doing that, that if you do that, you could never even hear teachings on emptiness, because when you're hearing teachings on emptiness, you're using concepts. Yeah. And although it's true, you know, from the Majamaka viewpoint, at the end of the road, you want to let go of the concepts and perceive emptiness directly. There's no fault in using concepts at the beginning to try and understand the topic. Okay? Now, arhats, yeah, beings who are liberated from cyclic existence, they perceive things only in the second and third ways. They can perceive things as empty or as as, um, illusory, and they can perceive things as neither. But they no longer grasp. I should have used the word grasp there, not perceive. But they no longer grasp things as truly existent because they've gotten rid of all the self-grasping ignorance. So true existence still appears to them, but they don't grasp it. Okay. And similarly, all the cognizers of somebody who has realized emptiness don't necessarily see their objects as like illusion or as empty. You know, sometimes we have this idea that somebody becomes that somebody has direct perception into emptiness, and then after that, ignorance is all gone, wrong, you know, false appearance is all gone. Uh-uh. You know, you can have direct insight into emptiness in meditative equipoise, 
But then in the break time, if you're not yet uh, an, an arhat, if you haven't attained liberation and uh, removed the afflictive obscurations yet, you still sometimes might have grasping a true existence when you're outside of your meditative equipoise on emptiness. And for those uh, beings who have inferential um, realization of emptiness but not direct realization, in their break times, when they're outside of their meditative equipoise, they may even have uh, the grasping at true existence uh, the, and the acquired grasping at true existence, I should say. Because they, they you know, because remember, beings who have inferential understandings of emptiness yeah they're on the path of preparation not the path of seeing so they're not aryas so they may still at times have the acquired afflictions like you know and it wouldn't happen very often because they've meditated a lot but they still may have you know one of these gross kind of graspings of true existence that comes from a, a wrong philosophical view and even after attaining the path of seeing and perceiving emptiness directly, you still may have, um, you still may grasp it to existence sometimes because of the habit that's there. Or in your post-meditation time, you may also have the third way of seeing things, which is neither truly existent nor non-truly existent. So as an aria, what you want to cultivate is the second one in the break time, seeing things as as like illusions but sometimes you don't have that and you just have it the third way as neither or sometimes you know some innate self-grasping comes up and you even have the uh, first way when you become an arhat or if you're on the bodhisattva path when you attain the eighth ground then you've eliminated all the self-grasping ignorance you've eliminated the afflictive obstructions and so from that point onwards, you no longer have the grasping at true existence, whether you're in meditation or not, because you've eliminated that self-grasping ignorance. Okay? So this is important to know because, um, you know, there's this book, what's it called? Uh, After the, the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And so there's a number of people in there who write about, you know, these incredible experiences they have in meditation. And then later on, they kind of, you know, go back and they're still fighting with people and still, you know, unhappy and all this stuff. And you can see that in the West, we seem kind of surprised, you know. It's like, wow, I, you know, now whether all these people actually saw emptiness directly is another question. I'm not even going to deal with that, okay? But even if they did, that doesn't mean that afterwards you never have any grasping, yeah, or that all your bad habits are gone because, you know, you still have the seeds of the afflictions in you until you attain either our hardship or the eighth bumi. And so if we know this, then we're not going to get kind of wrapped up in, you know, oh, I just got to have this one experience and that's going to cure the whole thing. And, and then you're not going to crash later on. But, oh, I thought I had this great realization of emptiness and I'm still, you know, getting upset. Okay. 
So there's many, many stages on this. And the wrong views are, you know, we're deeply habituated with them. And then in addition, you you know, we always need to check up when we have spiritual experiences. If they're genuine ones or if they're just appearances to the mind. Yeah. So even people, you know, the great meditators who have a vision of one of the deities, you know, they always check up. Is it the actual deity or is it just the mind? Yeah. Or sometimes we might feel like we're leaving our body. Yeah. But leaving our body, that's not the definition of, of realizing emptiness. You know, feeling like you're disassociating from your body. Yeah, I mean, that's just letting go of the grasping that I am my body temporarily. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you've realized the emptiness of the self. Okay? So, you know, whenever we have these experiences, we should examine them and use them in a way that's useful, that energizes us in our path, but not latch on to them as truly existent experiences that we're going to try and recreate because it means that I'm getting somewhere. I'm realizing the emptiness of the eye. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit contradictory. <laughs> okay, now let's talk a little bit about the, the correct sense of self that we want to have because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this too you know we hear that Buddhism teaches selflessness so then we think oh there's no self yeah there's no self and then um, but if there's no self then how do you say I'm walking down the street yeah you can't say that or People say there's no self, uh, and they use it as a way of self-deprecation. Like, you know, I'm useless, I'm valueless, there's, there's no me. Yeah. So in a, in, they use it in a psychologically unhealthy way. These people haven't really had insights into selflessness, but they've just heard the words and misunderstood the words. And so they think, oh, there's no self. So why try and do anything, you know? There's no self. So that's not it. And His Holiness repeatedly emphasizes that as a bodhisattva, you have to have a very clear sense of self. Not some fuzzy sense of self. But this clear sense of self does not necessarily mean that you have self-grasping. Because he says, I mean, if you're a bodhisattva and you're making the determination to liberate all sentient beings from samsara by myself alone, yeah, that's a pretty big promise. Yeah. And you need to have a lot of self-confidence to make that promise. And you need to have a lot of feeling of, oh, I can do it. You know, some joyous effort. Yes, yes, I can do this. Yeah. So that sense of self is a virtuous sense of self because it leads us to engage on the path. 
that sense of self isn't, it doesn't have to be grasping a true existence. It can be that that third sense of self is, you know, seeing it as neither. Or it could even be the second sense in the, in the case of uh, Arya's, seeing that self as illusory, but still having strong self-confidence in your ability to practice the path and, and attain the results. So don't think that realizing selflessness means you just kind of become like a worm, you know. No self. So I just sit here. I don't want anything. I don't prefer anything. Nothing. I don't exist. You know, I mean, do you think that's how a Bodhisattva spends their time? You know, I've never seen His Holiness sit like that. You know? I mean, and if you look at the, at the really great masters, you know, they have preferences. Yeah? You benefit sentient beings. You don't act negatively. There's preferences in there. Okay? But there's no grasping and inherent existence in the preferences. There's no attachment to the preferences. So sometimes, you know, we, we make the error and we think that when we realize emptiness, then there's no discrimination at all. It's all not, nothing. Now, it's true, it, while you're in meditative equipoise on emptiness, there is no discrimination. And there's no good and no bad and no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, body and mind. Because you're in the reflection on the ultimate nature, how things actually exist. But when you arise from that and you're functioning in the world, you still abide by worldly conventions and things still function. And so there's a person who can still discriminate between orange and purple. There's a person who can discriminate between what to practice and what to abandon. So, but this, so this discrimination can all occur, but without grasping at either one of the options as truly existent, and without attachment to one thing or the other. Okay? So when you're a highly realized being, you can speak very forcefully and directly, but you're not attached to your position. Okay. I know this is all incomprehensible to us, you know, because for us, when we speak forcefully and directly, we are attached. And that's my view, and don't you dare criticize it, because then you're saying that I'm bad. But for a bodhisattva, you know, people can criticize their views, you know, they don't take it personally, and they can still discriminate, you know, what to practice and what to abandon when they're out of meditative equipoise. When they're in meditative equipoise, there's no appearance of conventionalities at all. So none of that's going on. Okay? Make some sense? Yeah. So this this kind of stuff is important. Otherwise, it's so easy to get wrong ideas, you know? And we kind of develop our own spaced-out theories of, you know... Like either, oh, you have a glimpse, so you're fully enlightened and all the afflictions are gone. Sorry. Or, 
you know, you have a glimpse and there's no eye. So I just sit there. You know, some kind of drug stupor. (laughs) Wrong again. Okay? Okay. Now we're going to get into the juicy part. (laughs) Because... Now we're going to start the analytical process to see if things exist in the way that they appear. Okay? So, it's very important to be able to identify the appearance of true existence. Yeah, to know what it is. And then to see if true existence exists or not. If we leave true existence alone and we negate something else, then we're not going to eliminate the ignorance. Okay? So we have to be able to identify the appearance of true existence and then think if true existence existed in this way, this is how it would be. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because... Jiren Bache gives this great example of when you negate the wrong thing, you know, like you leave true existence all nice wrapped up with a bow on it and you trash something else, you negate something else. He said, it's like having a spirit in the West, but you offer the torma to the donkey in the East. You know, you're missing the mark. Or um, what would be a good American example? Uh, you know one stock is soaring, so you buy the one that's crashing. <laughs> we can get the stupidity of that. Anything related to money, we get real well. Um, <laughs> okay. And similarly, we don't just take emptiness ungranted and say, the person is not inherently existent because the Buddha said so. Okay? Because that doesn't get us any realizations either. Does it? Yeah? I mean, it's better than than grasping a true existence, but just saying, well, yeah, nothing inherently exists because the Buddha said so. Doesn't mean that we've refuted the object of negation. Just means we have some strong belief, but we can sure have some very strong grasping at the same time. Okay. Um, and so, although our our um, unimpaired worldly consciousnesses cannot perceive emptiness directly, they can, they do have the capability to contradict certain premises um, when we analyze the ultimate nature. Okay? So, for example, we say um, the self is not truly existent because if it were, it would be permanent. Okay. So our regular 
you know, consciousnesses, conventional consciousnesses, can understand that the self is impermanent, even though it can, that those consciousnesses cannot understand that the self is empty of true existence. Okay? Or cannot see true existence directly, I should say. Okay, so that's why we use syllogisms, we use consequences, things like this. A syllogism is like a proof, you know, the self is empty of inherent existence because it's dependent arising. A consequence is showing somebody the uh, wrong results that follow from their stating a certain thing. And that consequence um, undermines their own assertions. So they're kind of stuck. Like, you know, it's like if you say, uh, the self um, is not truly existent because if it were, it would be permanent. Well, the person knows that the self isn't permanent. But they also think the self is truly existent. And then when you're saying that if it's truly existent, it's got to be permanent, then they go... You know? And they see there's some contradiction there. So that's the use of consequences. Show somebody absurd uh, consequences. Okay. So, um, when we cultivate the right view, yeah, they, uh, we, we start with an example of something like a cart or a chariot or in modern times, a car. Yeah. But when we actually do the meditation, they recommend that we meditate on the emptiness of the person, our own self first, because our self is, our I is dedicated in dependence upon the body and mind. So the thing that's dedicated is always, uh, that's designated. Did I say designated? Oops. Okay. So the I is designated in dependence upon the body and mind. And the thing that is designated is always more unstable than the basis of designation. <laughs> okay? So the aggregates, the body and mind, is the, are the basis of designation. And then the self, the I that's merely imputed in dependence upon them, is the designated object. So they recommend when you're meditating, starting with that I, because they say it's easier to realize the, that emptiness than to realize, to start off trying to realize the emptiness of the body or the mind. So uh, there's some quotes here from Nagarjuna and then some from the, the Pali Canon that we're going to get into. So uh, Nagarjuna starts, and he, this is in the Precious Garland. If the person is not earth, not water, not fire, not wind, not space, not also consciousness, and not all of them together, where is the person outside of those? So you're looking for the person in the earth element of the body, the water element, the fire, the wind, the space element. You can't find the person in is any of those person is also not the consciousness okay and it's also not the collection of all those things together 
So where's the person outside of this? Can you find a person that's separate from those different elements? Then Nagarjuna continues, just as the person is not established in reality, because of being designated independence upon an aggregation of the six constituents, six constituents were earth, water, fire, space, air, consciousness, so each constituent also is not established in reality because of being designated independence upon an aggregation. So the cell is dependent on these six elements. Five of them were physical, earth, water, you know, those ones, and then consciousness. The self is the designated object, and those six are the basis of designation. But if you take any of those constituents individually, it becomes a designated object that is designated on its own individual basis of designation. <laughs> okay? So consciousness is designated independence upon this accumulation, the, this collection of moments of clarity and awareness. Okay? Or earth is designated independence upon all these things that are hard and solid. Okay? So what we're getting at is something can be a basis of designation in one uh, situation, and it can also be the designated object in another situation. Okay? So, for example, the consciousness is part of the basis of designation of the self, but it itself is also an object that's designated in independence upon the collection of moments of clarity and awareness. Okay? And so, in this way, you can see, for example, when you're negating the self, you're, you know, the truly existent self, you're not just negating the, the self, yeah, but you've also got to investigate each of the aggregates and see if they are truly existent. Okay? Following me? Okay. So in, in most practices, they, they, you know, say meditate on the emptiness of the, of the self first and then the aggregate. But then sometimes in some practices, you'll find it reversed. You know, meditate on the emptiness of the aggregate first and then the self. Okay. But in terms of the example, we're starting out with the example of a self of phenomena, which is, you know, in olden times, the chariot or the cart. But we're going to use a car. Okay, but let me read to you the quote that this starts with. And this is a very interesting quote because the Tibetans use it. And they just say uh, this, this quote is from a, uh, a sutra in the, fu- the fundamental vehicle. Well, I found this quote in the Pali Canon. Yeah. I'm using the translation here that the t- Tibetans have. I'm in the process of comparing the translations of this quote, you know, to see if all the words are exactly the same. So I'm just using the, the translation from the Tibetan right now. And this quote was spoken by a bhikshuni. 
Bhikshuni Vajira. And so she was meditating. And Mara, you know, who is the personification of hindrances, appears to her and tries to, you know, sidetrack her meditation and, you know, get her back into worldly things. And Bhikshuni Vajira says to Mara, Self is a demonic mind. You have a wrong view. These compositional aggregates are empty. There is no living being in them. Just as one speaks of a card, independence upon a collection of parts, so we use the convention living being, independence upon the aggregates. Okay? So self is a demonic mind. So Mara here is being personified as the grasping of the self. Yeah. That you have a wrong view. The compositional aggregates, in other words, form, which is the body, feelings, discriminations, conditioning factors, and consciousness. Yeah. They're empty. So there, that's the selflessness of phenomena. She's saying that the aggregates are empty. And then she says, there is no living being in them. That one's the self of persons. And then she uses the example, just as one speaks of a cart, yeah, independence upon a collection of parts. If you've ever ridden in a cart in India, you know, you have the wooden reels and the, you know, all the different things in the cart, or I haven't ridden in an Indian chariot. I guess those went out of style, but the cart stayed in style. Um, just as one speaks of a cart, independence upon a collection of parts, so you have the back and the, the downside and the wheels and the axle and the front and the seats and all of those, that's a collection of parts. So we use the convention living being or self or person, independence upon the aggregates. So independence upon the aggregates, we designate I. Just as independence upon the collection of parts, you designate the cart. But when you look to try in the, the parts, you can't find the cart. And when you look in the aggregates, the body and mind, you can't find the person. Okay, so that's what's getting emphasized in, in here. Okay, so when the Gajana, uh asked us to look at what's the relationship between the self and the aggregates, he gave five ways of checking this out to see that the self and the aggregates are not uh, inherently, the, you know, are, that the self is not the aggregates. Uh, and then Chandrakirti in his supplement added two more. So you get the seven-point uh, negation. When we do the four-point meditation on emptiness, yeah, remember the four-point analysis? The first one is identifying the object of negation. The second one is establishing the pervasion. In other words, that if uh, things did exist inherently, 
they should be either inherently one or inherently separate. There's no third alternative. Then the third one is that the, the self and the aggregates aren't inherently one, and the fourth is that they're not inherently different, and then the conclusion is that therefore there's no inherently existing person. Okay, that's the four-point analysis of that. The seven points that Chandrakirti teaches all boil down to the self is not inherently one with the aggregates, which is the third point in the four-point analysis, and the self is not in, in, inherently independent from the aggregates, which is the fourth point in the fourth four-point analysis. Okay? So what Chandrakirti is doing is he's just taking the third and fourth point and expanding them, because in expanding them, he's getting us to, you know, look a little deeper and dig a little deeper and see what exactly is the relationship between the aggregates, the body and mind on one hand, and the self, the person on the other. Yeah, because our big problem is that we think that there's this independent person that's somewhere mixed inside the aggregates that exists without depending on our name and concept. And all beings have that, including kitties. <laughs> no kitty down there tonight. Okay. So, we're going to start with the example of a car, because, uh, you know, none of us are terribly attached to carts, are we? You know, or to wagons. It's not going to get you. But... People in this country are very attached to their cars. Yeah. Actually, I think everywhere in the world people are attached to their cars. It, it was interesting. I, when I was in Singapore, I, um, I asked one person, because people there, they keep their cars immaculate. It's not like in this country where the car is like filth, filthy and filled with junk, you know. In Singapore, you get into anybody's car, it is immaculate. Not only tidy, but free from dirt. And they wash their cars every day. It's just incredible. And I asked them, I asked somebody, why, you know? Why like this? And they said, well, in our country, you don't usually invite your friends over to your house. People don't have the custom so much of meeting at somebody's house, they'll meet rather out outdoors at a restaurant or, you know, somewhere that's not at somebody's house. So no so you don't gain any status by having nice things in your house. But if people ride in your car or they see your car then you gain some status. In this country we do invite people into our houses but we also are very attached to our cars and get status from our cars, don't we? Yeah. Even if you keep your car a mess, still, you know, here's my messy Volvo or my messy BMW or whatever it is. Okay? So it, it's going to bring a little bit more sting if we're analyzing to look for the, the car. Yeah, than for a cart. Okay, so let's go to the seven points. I'll just list them and then we'll start talking about them. 
So if a car, and remember this is the example we're going through right now, if a car existed inherently, then a probing consciousness that's analyzing the ultimate should be able to establish it as existing in any one of seven ways. And it should exist inherently in any of these seven ways. So, and it, and it should be, and a re, this, this probing consciousness that really investigates the ultimate mode of existence, it should be able to see this. Yeah? So, what are the seven alternatives for how the, it should be able to find the eye if it were inherently existent? One is that it's one with its parts. Second is that it's different from its parts. Third is that it possesses its parts. Fourth is that it's dependent upon its parts. Fifth is it is what its parts depend upon. Okay. It's what its parts depend upon. The sixth is that it's the collection of the parts. And the seventh is that it's the shape or the arrangement of the parts. So now we start to investigate. Okay? And in investigating these seven ways, all sorts of interesting things come up and we'll have a few sidetracks here and there of quite interesting points. Now, before getting into that, what I want to do is just explain a little bit about these words one and different or same and separate or distinct or sometimes it's translated as one and many. Okay? And sometimes different teachers will will use these words in slight that it's it's chik dung tade in Tibetan. So chik means one, or it can mean the same. And tade can mean different or distinct or several, you know, many. So there's different ways. Okay? So we have to understand a little bit about relationships here. And I, I want this to be clarifying and not confusing. Yeah? So if things are one, yeah, if they're inherently one especially, it means they're one and the same. They're exactly the same. Yeah. If things are different, it just means on a conventional level that they're distinct. The telephone is distinct from the recorder. They're different. Yeah. Now, if you say one nature and different natures, then there's a different meaning. Okay? For things to be one nature, they have to exist at the same time, and one cannot exist without the other existing. So it's saying things are one nature is indicating a particular kind of relationship. Okay, so for example, 
Okay. The the peach and the skin of the peach, or I should say the skin of the peach, is one nature with the peach. So if you have the skin of the peach, you have the peach and vice versa. Okay? Yeah? Or the color of the peach is one nature with the peach. Okay? But the color and the peach are not one. They're one nature, but they're not one. Because to be one, they have to be exactly the same. And the color and the peach are not exactly the same, are they? Okay. But they are one nature. Because you can't have the color without having the peach. You can't have the peach without having the color of the peach. Okay. Different. Yeah. Two things can be different. Like the color of the peach and the peach are different. But they're not different natures. Okay. Because if they were different natures... They could exist at different times, or even if they existed at the same time, they don't need to have any relationship to each other. You know, like the table and the recorder exist at the same time, but they're different. Okay? And they're also different natures. The the, the table and the tape recorder are different, and they're different natures. Okay? Now we get into certain things like the two truths are one nature, but they're nominally different. Yeah, ultimate truth and conventional truth are not the same thing. But they are one nature because you can't have one without having the other. And they depend on each other. So sometimes when some teachers present this, they do the analysis just as one and different. Sometimes they do it as one nature and different natures. And sometimes they do it as one and many in a numerical way. So the self is one, the aggregates are many. Okay? Just just so you know, in case you meet this kind of situation, somebody explaining it slightly differently. Here we're going to talk specifically about things being one and different, yeah. But we will, in the process, get into talking about things that are one nature and different natures. (laughs) Don't you go getting confused. (laughs) Okay. So, um... Uh, oh, that's okay, so um, let's look at the example of the car and the parts of the car. Well, you know, actually, maybe we better pause here because we're almost out of time and start this next next time and see if you have any questions right now. Yeah, but from back at the beginning, yeah, it's always puzzled me. In the three ways of apprehending. Uh-huh. Of apprehending things that truly existent or apprehending things as neither. Mm-hmm. If we're apprehending things that truly existent or grasping, or grasping, yeah. does that mean an affliction an afflictive emotion is always present when that okay. grasping is taking place? Okay, so the question is when we're apprehending something or grasping something as truly existent, is an affliction present? 
that grasping at true existence is ignorance. That's the afflicted ignorance. Yes. Uh, but the, so the wrong conception, the thing that makes us see things as erroneous. As erroneous or as uh, false? No, it's the thing that sees the appearance, the appearance is, uh, is that incorrect view. Mistaken. Mistaken, that's the word, yeah. So what is that ignorance? Okay. The, uh, the appearance of true existence is a cognitive obscuration. It's not a consciousness. Yeah. And it arises due to the uh, latencies of ignorance in the mind stream. But it's what obscures full enlightenment. The grasping at true existence is a consciousness and it's what prevents liberation and causes samsara. It is an obscuration, it is not a consciousness. Afflictive ignorance is a consciousness. In the, when the, in the three kinds of impermanent phenomena of form, consciousness, and uh, abstract composite, it falls in the category of consciousness. When we're talking about the, the two obscurations, what prevents liberation and what prevents in, enlightenment, it, uh, the, the ignorance falls in the first one, the afflictive obscurations. And afflictive obscurations include all these afflictions, which are consciousnesses, the seeds of the afflictions, which are abstract composites, and the karmic seeds that cause rebirth and samsara, which are also abstract composites. The cognitive obscurations, that's the ones that you eliminate after the afflictive ones, those are like the appearance of duality, yeah, the appearance of true existence, and those arise, those and the latencies of ignorance are what are the cognitive obscurations. And both the latencies and the appearance uh, of true existence are, compo- are um, abstract composites. Okay? Yes. You got it? Well, I think so. I mean, it helps. I always thought that that was also an ignorance. So no, the cognitive obscurations are not ignorant. That's for, really okay, for the lower schools, maybe this is where you got confused. For all the for the Svatantrakamajamakas and the Chittamadrans, the cognitive obscurations are consciousness. Oh. You know, and so they differentiate an afflicted ignorance and a non-afflicted ignorance saying that the afflicted ignorance is grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, and for the Chittamadrans, the afflictive ignorance is grasping that subject and object arise from different seeds, or that things are, are, um, are, um, exist, by, exist as the reference of their titles by way of their own, their own characteristics. And for the Svatantrika Madhyamakas, the cognitive obscuration so the grass is the grasping true existence. Which, which is, okay. yeah, because remember the Svatantrikas say that you just need to negate 
self-sufficient, substantially existent person to be free of samsara. Okay? So the way that prasangitas state the afflictive and cognitive obscurations is unique. It's not like the other schools. And if it seems like a lot of names and terms, that's what it seems like at the beginning. But as you get to understand what these names and terms mean and what they're pointing at and identifying these things in your own experience, it becomes quite interesting. Yeah, and it is actually related. It's not just intellectual gibberish. It's actually a core issue for liberation and enlightenment. Other questions? beginning I was distinguishing our hardship and, and then being on the eighth bumi of a bodhisattva and is, does that relate to there being different paths? Yes. Because on the paths of the uh, hearers and solitary realizers okay they don't uh, go through the, the ten bodhisattva bumis. Okay. Only on when you're on the bodhisattva path do you go through the ten bodhisattva bumis. Okay. So the arhats, um, or the hearers and solitary realizers, eliminate um, all the afflictive obscurations that keep us trapped in psychic existence. They eliminate that on the fifth path, which is the path of no more learning, of their vehicle. Because okay. you have the five paths of the hearer vehicle, the five paths of the solitary realizer vehicle, five paths of the bodhisattva vehicle. Okay. In terms of the bodhisattvas, if it's a new bodhisattva, in other words, somebody who wasn't a hearer or a solitary realizer first, somebody who entered the bodhisattva path first, you know, initially, then they don't eliminate the afflictive obscurations until the eighth bumi, which is on the bodhisattva path of meditation. And then what they eliminate by the time they get to the Mahayana Bodhisattva path of no more learning is also is the cognitive obscurations. Okay. I know some of you have heard this many times. What is very helpful to do to remember it is draw it out. You know, make yourself, you hear the teachings. I mean, I, I could do it all for you, but then you might not learn. Okay, whereas if you take it yourself and draw it out, you know, and write in what is the definition of each path and who realizes what, you know, and make your 15 paths, five in the here, five in the solitary, realize the five in the bodhisattva. Yeah, and then that helps. And then within the, the bodhisattva, put in the ten boonies. The first boomi has to is on the path of... Uh, seeing and the other nine boobies on the path of meditation. 
Bumi is a Sanskrit word. It, it means some. It's often translated as ground or level or stage. Different translations. Okay? So you can see with this kind of teaching, you have to review your notes from one week to the next. If you don't review your notes, you're going to be lost the next teaching. Yeah. So you have to take some time and review your notes and go back and try and understand these things and diagram them out and, you know, and come back to me with questions. I know when there's no questions, it's because people aren't reviewing their notes. Okay, so we'll stop here.